Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter here to navigate the rough seas of global politics like we do every other week. Mooney, in the last couple of months, our team here at Altamar, we've been all discussing at how global free trade has suddenly become this ugly duckling after decades of liberalization and trade agreements and open markets and this sense of consensus that free trade helped everybody. So we decided to dive deeper into this issue with trade expert Chad Bound from the Peterson Institute as our guest. And Mooney, I, I'm surprised and you know maybe I'm not so surprised at how this global trading system is now increasingly under pressure and how decades of consensus that trade benefits the global economy and benefits the consumer is now completely broken. COVID, politics, and economic uncertainty have fueled, again, the protectionist fire. I agree. And it, it's really interesting. I worked in the field of international trade for a long time, pushing trade agreements from Colombia to the rest of the world, working with companies entering global markets. It seemed like the, you know, the grownups in the world were the open economies that, that engaged in global trade that had agreements with many, many countries. And that was kind of a badge of honor. Everyone believed, except maybe some, you know, outliers or, or very, uh, strong um, labor unions, that trade was a source of growth, especially in the developing world. In the past years, as you say, though, there has been tremendous pushback and blame assigned to trade as harming workers, their rights. And WTO numbers point to a decrease in global trade of 7.6% in 2020, that's even at the beginning of the pandemic, and trade disputes and politics, economic uncertainty, the growing income gap have really stoked the fire of protectionism. And to me, the question is whether trade is rightly being accused of not solving lots of problems, or, or is it actually the scapegoat that everybody's looking at for this? But you know, wh whatever the answer to that question is, Mooney, the term free trade, nobody like dares use it anymore. It's been replaced by fair trade or supply chains. You know, WTO talks have become more and more contentious. But even though the recent conference held with about 100 trade ministers led to some consensus on global trading rules. But, you know, among the disagreements and tensions, especially as protectionist India blocked many initiatives at the meeting, the meeting did yield some agreements on tough agenda items like supply chains, intellectual property, tech, e-commerce, vaccine distribution, and fishing rights. But, you know, those are all technical questions. But the problem with free trade is it, it's in political problem, not technical problems. You're right. And it's kind of a, an ideological issue and it's very much attached to nationalism. So let's talk about Donald Trump, who is the poster child of protectionism, courting worker votes by vilifying trade as a catalyst for lost jobs. He pulled out of deals left and right, imposed tariffs, decided to kind of go his own way in terms of engaging in trade with other countries, dismissed all these international agreements and organizations. So the U.S., the U.S. is the beacon of liberal economic freedom now has turned inward. And you know what's really weird, Peter? The Biden government has done very little to reverse the trend. And we would think that, you know, they, they would disagree, but he's been relatively silent on trade. 
around the world this is happening. Nationalist parties in Europe have flourished on a trade unfriendly agenda, and the EU has now set up a set of pretty protectionist legal instruments. Latin American leaders love running campaigns on renegotiating agreements. Mexico actually did it with Canada and the U.S. Chinese tariffs and restrictive trade environments continue to be a reality despite these endless talks with the U.S. Conversations between the EU and trading partners like New Zealand are sabotaged by loud protests, by dairy, meat sectors, etc. And there are partnerships such as RCEP and among ASEAN countries. We, we actually had a podcast on this, looking for tariff reductions, looking for multinational cooperation, but member nations also face industry pushbacks and political pushback. Protectionism has gone global. So to be fair, you know, protectionism is sometimes necessary to protect sensitive industries and avoid unsafe products and unfair trade practices. But, you know, Bans, sanctions, barriers now are all political tools that do almost nothing to create equality. And even so, youth is less likely to advocate for free trade and globalization than their parents used to be. Let's hear from Taya about how trade agreements and globalizations can actually protect children from exploitation. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So this time, I want to talk about youth in a different way. Usually, I cover youth who's opinionated, angered, or taking a stance on social justice. But today, I want to talk about child labor, human trafficking, and sexual exploitation, all unfortunate consequences of global trade. Of course, these are phenomena that are not caused by free trade, but in many instances, they are exacerbated by it. And for the first time in 20 years, global indicators showed an increase in child labor. The International Labor Organization's report points to a significant rise in the number of children aged 5 to 11 in child labor, who now account for just over half of the total global figure. And the number of children aged 5 to 17 in hazardous work, which is defined as work that is likely to harm their health, safety, or morals, that has risen by 6.5 million to 79 million since 2016. And in sub-Saharan Africa, population growth, recurrent crises, extreme poverty, and inadequate social protection measures have led to an additional 16.6 million children in child labor over the past four years. And even in regions where there has been some headway since 2016, such as Asia and the Pacific and Latin America and the Caribbean, COVID-19 is endangering that progress. So I know we're all thinking about how awful it is that young children are forced to work in agriculture, industry, and services. They should be playing, learning, enjoying themselves, and of course they should. But the adults that put them up to it, they're in most cases not doing it for some, you know, sick, sadistic pleasure. I mean, they're doing it because of poverty, broken supply chains, and production pressures. So of course I am a free trade proponent, Mercantilism is no solution, but we have to acknowledge that it does come at a cost and that the market won't just correct itself automatically. So that's a whole separate podcast just on that, but it will take much investment to balance out the negative effects of free trade and mostly when it comes to labor. 
So what do you think? Why has child labor surged? Is it a one-off because of the pandemic or is there something deeper happening? Tweet it out on our podcast and let's have a debate. Taya, that's a super interesting take on, on this. And I, I think we should turn to our guests about, you know, the retreat of free trade. Chad Bowne joined the prestigious Peterson Institute for International Economics as a senior fellow in 2016. His research examines international trade laws and institutions, trade negotiations, and trade disputes. He is the co-host of Trade Talks, a fellow podcast about economics of international trade and policy. Chad previously served as Senior Economist for International Trade and Investment in the White House on the Council of Economic Advisors, and most recently as Lead Economist at the World Bank, conducting research and advising developing country governments on international trade policy for seven years. He has spent a year in residence as a visiting scholar in economic research at the World Trade Organization Secretariat in Geneva. He serves on the editorial boards of numerous journals on trade, including economics and politics, international economics, the World Trade Review, and so many other. Chad Baun, a fellow podcaster, welcome to Altamar. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the big picture. You know, what's the status of free trade around the world? As I mentioned to you, Mooney and I sort of seem to see this all in retreat, and Taya is going to talk about how youth sees it, but it seems to have fallen out of favor. What happened? Well, I, I think we should take this maybe in two parts. One is that free trade falls out of favor quite frequently. And so now I've been doing professional trade for close to 25 years. And, you know, every few years, it, it kind of comes and goes. So I, th I think the really big question is, is now really, really different. I mean, so far over those 25 years, it really hasn't gone into retreat. So the question is, is today different? Uh, and, I, and there, I still think the jury is out. There are definitely some countries that have taken steps to make their lives in trade more difficult. That includes the United States, obviously, with the actions of President Trump and, and that administration and all those tariffs that were imposed on China. Uh, that includes the United Kingdom and the decision to have Brexit and, you know, both leave the European Union and then try to, you know, restart new trade relationships with others, which is complicated and is going to take time. But with the exception of, of those two examples, the rest of the world has kind of continued to go ahead and in many instances is actually integrating more deeply between themselves. So I don't think it's a uniform story. And even in the context of, you know, the Brexit in, in the United States cases, some of the jury is still out. And what do you think the factors are that affect the sense of globalization, that pendulum you talked about? Why, why does it seem to swing one way or the other? There are a number of factors at play, clearly. I think in, in the United States and in the UK, domestic politics ha have played a really big role. President Trump especially was really skilled at playing up the fear of foreigners, all things foreign, whether it was immigration or trade, at convincing Americans and, and a lot of Americans that whatever their problems were, that was the cause. And thus, you know, in the case of trade, tariffs should be imposed and that would sort of fix it. UK had, you know, kind of similar stories with fear of, of migrants and loss of control to, to Brussels. And so I think there's some domestic politics that are, that are part of it. Certainly geopolitics also matter. I think 
at least in the United States' case, the increasing concern over a more assertive China and just how economically integrated we have become with China over the last 15 to 20 years and whether that makes us vulnerable in you know, certain products or certain raw materials that you might need access to as, as China is increasingly throwing its weight around globally and is no longer just sort of a, a passive player. What has been sort of latent concerns in the United States has risen to the fore and uh, it may be you know, caused to, to do something about. And then obviously, as we're seeing take place over the last six months with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some of those kind of theoretical concerns about what can happen if you become overly dependent on a certain country that may not necessarily be reliable or, or stable or you know have ulterior motives can come back and bite you. And so I think that's causing some, those are some of the, I think, major causes of why increasingly a number of folks are, are questioning where we are now with trade. Can, can I, I don't know if I'm, the word is follow up or push back. I mean, you know, you mentioned Trump as a, as the guy who took the lid off, but he, you know, he was in a way just a, a, a symptom, right? I mean, he was just in the, he didn't cause this. It seems to me like there are also economic causes, in particular, the growing inequality, uh, the growing disenfranchisement of the middle class, particularly here in the United States, that seem to push this forward. No, I mean, uh, there are definitely concerns in the United States about growing inequality. Uh, and there's also increasing recognition that international trade has played a role in certain communities struggling, you know, the inability to adjust to new import competition arising from, you know, over the last 15 to 20 years, it's been China. In the 1980s, it was Japan. You know, in the 1970s and 60s, it was Europe. So this is really not a new phenomenon. The, the, the growing inequality problem, I, I agree, is, is huge. But I think there's a legitimate question of how much of that is really the cause of trade versus other things. And there, I, I don't think the linkages are so stark. But what President Trump was particularly good at was attributing it to trade. And that was something that he could do something about, right? It's much more difficult to be able to slow down you know, the inequality that may be arising because of access to technology or the role of you know, big tech or something like that uh, or other impediments that may make it difficult for workers to move from disadvantaged regions you know, into cities where it's really expensive to live, but that's where the you know, new and, and growing sectors of the economy are thriving. Those are much bigger challenges, and it was just easy to uh, play up the trade story and to turn to tariffs sort of as the answer. One of the things that we've all noted here is, is that though the big global agreements perhaps might be waning, it certainly looks like there are regional agreements, RCEP in Asia, the African Continental FTA, that continue to move forward. And, and indeed, we had a guest on last week on, in, in this podcast that said that the Africa FTA is perhaps the most important thing for Africa's future. So I guess the question is, are regional agreements the sort of new 2.0 of, uh, of trade? They could be. Um, and in the Africa story, I mean, I think we're hopeful that, that will turn out to be the case. Regional integration through trade is obviously not new, and it's kind of had a, a mixed track record in and of itself. The most successful story of focusing on regional integration, of course, is the European project. You know, following the Second World War, in the integration of France, 
Germany, Italy, Spain, you know, countries that used to go to war with each other every, you know, 10 to 20 years, all of a sudden opening up to each other in trade, getting rid of all of their internal trade barriers uh, and having one giant large integrated market. You know, the, the question is, could Africa achieve something like that? It's also been a success story in East Asia over the last 30 to 40 years, a different model. These countries haven't become as integrated politically in, in, in terms of other economics, but they have through supply chains. But there, you know, there have been a couple of dominant economies that have really taken the lead. You know, first it was Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and now obviously China. In other areas of the world, it, it you know, the, the success is a bit more mixed. The United States, the North American integration has been, I think, relatively successful for the United States, has been not as successful as one might have hoped for Mexico. And then in South America, you know, there have been a number of, of increasing, you know, regional integration initiatives, but they have not really pushed the needle forward too much at all. So it, it's not a panacea, that is to say. And I think while we're hopeful that it could be something that would push Africa forward, I still think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to actually make something like that actually you know, turn into a successful endeavor. So Chad, you, you talked about the kind of faltering regional blocks in Latin America. And, and you're right, it's very hard because they've all turned kind of ideological and political. But what is very much the rage, and I'm Colombian, and it's very much the rage in Colombia and many other countries are, is the new, the new language of nearshoring, friendshoring. So I wonder exactly how nearshoring is going to work because we find that many countries don't have the infrastructure to try to resupply or to become suppliers for, to, to substitute Asia or to, you know, the, make that part of their policy. But everybody's very excited. How viable do you see it? Is it a mixed bag where some countries have the capacity to do it and others are just kind of dreaming and, and spouting political, um, interesting political talk? It, to me, it's another one of these, uh, we'll have to wait and see. I, I think, you know, we also have to keep in mind that there hasn't been as much benefit in in Central and Latin America of supply chains, the same sort of, you know, really dynamism that, that took place in East Asia, despite the fact that it's right next door to the United States, this major consumer market. And the fact that many of these economies have already free trade agreements with the United States. So, you know, CAFTA, Dominican Republic, Colombia, Peru, obviously Mexico for a number of years. And many of those East Asian economies don't. So they already have better terms of access than, than East Asian. So the question is, why haven't these sort of forces already embedded themselves in, into the region? And is now really different. Well, maybe it's different. You know, maybe the United States, we, we do now have 25% tariffs, you know, of that neighborhood on roughly two thirds of what we import from China. That is going to create economic incentives for some of these supply chains to relocate themselves. But the question is, you know, the, the geographic proximity to being close to each other in East Asia, is that going to be fully broken and more stuff moved to Central Latin American, or will things just sort of reallocate themselves across East Asia or somewhere closer to there in that region? And I'm not sure we know the answers to those things yet. There, there are definitely opportunities here, uh, but this as well is at the moment, you know, I think a lot more rhetoric than, um, than we've seen actually materialize yet in practice. 
So we talked about how free trade is kind of a, a bad term right now, and it should be uh, politically correctly said, be called fair trade. What are the benefits that come from curbing global free trade? And I mean, societal benefits. And then kind of a follow-up question is, what is the role of business? Because when I was working on trade, business was very much an advocate of international trade and, and lowering tariffs. And now it seems that it's business that's become protectionist. Well, so let me answer your first question about the benefits of, of free trade. I, you know, I honestly rarely use the words free trade just because it does have such a negative connotation. So I'll just talk about trade. But I think it's also important to, to be balanced and to talk about you know, the, the benefits and the costs. And any change in policy does have distributional implications. And so we need to be clear about you know, who the winners and losers are going to be. And if the losers are, are large, you know, talk about compensation and other things that we, we might need to do. The, the question of free trade, you know, at the moment in the United States, certainly the biggest, biggest, biggest economic issue is inflation, higher prices. So you might ask yourself, well, why is that such a big deal? I mean, un the unemployment rate is extraordinarily low. It's 3.6%. So basically, you know, kind of everybody that wants a job and more can have one. Um, the economy, you know, is maybe slowing down, but it's still growing. But everybody is up in arms about inflation and high prices. Well, what does free trade do? Free trade allows you access to more goods from abroad, introduces more competition that lowers prices. So if you were to take that away, what would it mean? Well, prices would go up. Fair trade, the, the question ultimately boils down to how much more are consumers willing to spend to pay for trade that might have certain attributes? So whether it's with a specific trading partner, maybe we don't like China or we don't like Russia because they're you know non-democratic, they invade other countries, we don't want to trade with them. Okay, well, how much are we willing to pay to not like them? If we want to ensure that our goods are you know being manufactured or something by workers that have the ability to collectively organize, into unions, how much are we willing to pay for that? Similarly, uh, you know, a clean environment. So in any case, you can, all of this boils down to prices. And I would like to think that consumers are willing to pay more for, you know, these attributes, but also at the same time, I'm not, I'm not optimistic given how up in arms they are at the moment when they're actually being confronted with, with rising prices in real time here in the United States, at least. So speaking of the kind of trade that we want, you know, child labor is up for the first time in 20 years. And, you know, there is a lot of pressure in a lot of countries and regions around the world related to COVID and these economic pressures you talked about, you know, increase, trying to increase production, efficiencies, et cetera. So, you know, what would you say are some safeguards we can put in place against child labor and, and how can we combat it? Child labor, I think there's, there's two ways that, that I would address the, the kind of the core issue. One is first acknowledge absolutely child labor is, you know, amongst the worst forms of forced labor. You know, all forced labor is bad. Child labor is probably, you know, the, the worst of all of that. However, there's kind of mixed evidence about the linkages between the prevalence of child labor and globalization. So I, I don't think necessarily that the, the economic evidence, at least out there, would always confirm that they go together. Some of the prevalence, the increased prevalence of child labor over the last couple of years is really because of the negative economic shocks having to do with the pandemic. 
which you know isn't necessarily globalization. It is families whose economic circumstances have been hit and they need to do something different to survive. And they do, you know, what they can, which is oftentimes having to pull their kids out of school that would lead to a much better long run outcome for both their kids, their families, their countries, and and force them into the workforce just to get by, right? To ensure that there's enough food on the table to be able to deal with the immediate crisis at hand. So I think, you know, to the extent that we have seen an uptick in this worrisome child labor over the last couple of years, I think that's probably a chunk of it. On the trade piece of this, I think we do have work to do to improve transparency into supply chains. So I think, you know, when we're seeing some of this, not necessarily in the child labor context, but in the United States right now, concerns over forced labor in the Xinjiang region of of China and new laws going into effect that are forcing companies to do more due diligence about their supply chains and making sure that the intermediate inputs that you know their suppliers might be acquiring from somewhere in the world aren't being manufactured or made with with forced labor. I think we want to have arguably the same kinds of progress being made when it comes to child labor as well. So companies and ultimately consumers really knowing you know, where the inputs are coming from that are being used to make the things that they're buying. That's hard to do. It's going to be costly, right? Forcing companies to track this, to set up accounting systems, auditing systems to ensure that this doesn't happen. It doesn't come for free. It's going to cost money. Consumers need to be willing to pay for it, but hopefully they will be uh, because I agree is, is the kind of thing that's super important. Chad, I want to engage you a little bit on on the sort of geopolitical situation. I mean, you you made you made a great argument at the beginning of of our interview about how even in the United States, it seems like politics, particularly due to President Trump, but politics is now trumping you know price, efficiency, productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And so, where then goes the U.S. Chinese relationship, and and what is the outlook for? The U.S. and China, as you said, 25% now tariffs on almost anything that comes from China. It certainly looks like the relationship is worsening every day. Do you see trade taking a large hit and the situation getting even worse? Look look in your crystal ball and tell me what happens in three, five years. Um, I have thrown out my crystal ball uh, when it it comes to the U.S.-China trade relationship. I guess what what I would say is things don't look good. I, I, I think that it's not, not any longer a question about the economic relationship. Um, it used to be, so, you know, when the, the trade war first got kicked off by, by President Trump back in 2018, at least rhetorically, the argument was, well, China's a non-market economy. You know, they subsidize a lot of industries. They're doing things that are unfair in trade. And, and that's what we need to fix. If they would just sort of play by our Western economy rules, then we would be happy trading with them more. I think today that's no longer the argument. Um, the argument is much more we're worried about, you know, the increasing assertiveness of China in the region its willingness to use its own economic policies to throw its weight around that cause us to be worried about being reliant on China for, you know, whether it's certain raw materials that we might need. You know, if you can think about rare earths, say, that are that are crucial for 
a lot of consumer electronics, but also things that you know the military needs, semiconductors, lots of lots of things like that. Personal protective equipment, you know what we saw during the during the pandemic, active pharmaceutical ingredients, right? The, the concern is that China is such a large supplier of of so many of these types of goods that if you become reliant on them, that means that at some point they could threaten to cut you off and make your life extremely difficult. And we are seeing in real time this play out with respect to Russia and Europe, right? When it comes to energy, Russia holding, you know, over the, over the head of, of Germany and other countries in Europe, the ability to cut off natural gas exports, which, you know, may impact their industrial activity, potentially heating, you know, in the, in the middle of winter and making folks feel more vulnerable. And I think certainly American policymakers are looking at that and saying to themselves, yeah, that was kind of what we were saying we were worried about with respect to China all along and why we want to have, you know, less reliance on China, more diversification, move some of the supply chains that American, you know, trade would be reliant on out of China. So those are not really economic arguments, right? This is this is about something else. And unfortunately, that's, I think, where we are in, in the US-China relationship. I think, you know, what happens next may largely be how China reacts uh, and if there's any change in you know its behavior. And we haven't seen any over the last couple of years. So I'm not optimistic for, for any kind of change anytime soon. I have a one minute question. We have, we're running out of time, Chad. What is the future of trade agreements? Earlier, they were just trade. Then there was labor and the environment clauses in. What is the, the, the new structure that you think is going to be put in place? And, and of course, we have 30 seconds to answer that. And in particular, Biden, you know, the Biden administration certainly seems to want trade agreements that don't have to go to Congress. Yeah, well, I mean, so the the Biden administration, I think, is loves this new agreement with Mexico and Canada, the USMCA, uh, because it has this ability to rapidly enforce labor standards violations or concerns in, in Mexico, especially. So if workers can't organize into a union in Mexico at a plant, uh, you can bring a dispute against them and sort of get it resolved almost immediately. I think in some ideal world, they would want to extend this model to many countries in the rest of the world. Most countries in the rest of the world are not particularly reliant on the United States in the same way that Mexico is. So I'm not sure we have that kind of leverage, but they're, I think, workshopping the idea out there in this new Indo-Pacific economic framework um, that they're, you know, engaging with with many countries in, in East and in South Asia on. So at least on the U.S. side, we'll have to wait and see. Chad Bowne, thank you so much for joining us today on Altamar. Thanks for having me. Peter, something that you said actually stuck in my brain was um, how to negotiate trade agreements without Congress. And those of us who've worked on them know how tedious it is to try to make any tiny changes because it's like writing constitutions in two countries at a time. And I wonder if a more flexible, lighter, more uh, kind of versatile agreement is going to be the, the trade agreement of the future. And then, of course, I'd like to hear from Thea the, the final word on the, on the issue of child labor, which sometimes is safeguarded by trade agreements. Yeah, look, I, I think there's no choice to do this, but I, I have no trust in doing this. And the reason there's no choice is because trade has become so unpopular, so politically nuclear and radioactive 
that there's no possibility that any Congress anywhere is going to do it. Just look at what the constitution that they've created in Chile, which is completely anti-trade. A constitution that probably is not going to pass, but that's the constitution that they created. So trade has become radioactive on the one hand. The problem with doing it the way Chad describes, you know, doing this in the light way, is that the next president can undo it, right? Because it's not law. So, you know, it just seems to me that trade is going to be, I, I thought what was interesting that he said is that trade has been, trade has been damaged and beaten up forever. And it's actually, you know, going back to my old economics classes, I actually remember that that's actually true. Beggar thy neighbor policies and things like that. So he's right to be a little sanguine. Is this the final nail in the coffin? Well, maybe there's more nails to come or maybe it will have a revival. Right. And I think we also, you know, live in a changed world, right? I mean, with post-COVID and, and, and that's really, you know, we talked about with child labor and how important it is to continue having these safeguards in place for forced labor. And, and the worst of all, of course, being child labor and, you know, what we said, COVID and climate change and so many changing things in the world and, and trade will be really affected by that. So, with that, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps us a lot. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for an analysis of global trends. And we will see you next time.